on Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Peinecker, and I'm very, very excited about the guest I'm having on the program today. Before I get there, just a reminder, Mormon Book Reviews uh, for our merch store. Somebody just ordered a hat and a t-shirt last night. Thank you for whoever did that. Um, if you want to support our channel on PayPal and Patreon, uh, please, uh, I'll leave some links. Uh, in, any contributions can make really are helpful to this channel. It really helps me improve. Uh, our equipment. And speaking of equipment, folks, so now if you watch Monday's interview with Justin, you probably realized uh, I didn't look so good. Well, I didn't. We just got new lighting and I didn't know what I'd do. And so Anthony set up the lighting. Uh, we got a little more state-of-the-art lighting in the studio as a result of the supports from this channel. So I want to thank you for all that. Now, I'm very excited about this episode <clears throat> because we're going to be talking about masonry and Mormonism. What role did the masonry play in influencing uh, Mormonism? And I brought on somebody who, by the way, if you look at that symbol behind, yes, Jason Smith is a Mason, and he's also an expert on Mormonism. And we're going to delve a little bit into that as well. Uh, Jason Smith, welcome so much to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. So I've been talking to you since last summer, and we actually have a couple things. I'm, I'm interested in Mormonism and Masonry, uh, but we also have a, 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 both have a uh, a person in common that we really admire, and that is the person in Pauline Hancock, who founded a church in Independence, Missouri. Uh, if we get time today, folks, we're going to talk a little bit about Pauline Hancock's church. If you also want to know more about that church, you can watch my interview with Sandra Tanner, where we talk about it. That was the church the Tanners went to after they left the LDS church. Uh, so we'll talk about that. But today you're on, and actually, I'm going to have you back on for another episode too, because we're also going to talk about how you ended up being a and kind of an anti-Mormon evangelical Christian who has now become more nuanced, progressive Christian, and kind of a friend to Mormonism. Um, and that's a fascinating story as well. But I think the story that's going to be really fascinating today is Freemasonry and Mormonism. I want to read Jason's bio because this will give you some background. Jason has been a Mason since 2012 and is a past worshipful master of Duncan's number 60 and the Oklahoma Lodge of Research. He's also a member of many other Masonic bodies. He has been a student of American religious history, particular Mormonism, particularly Mormonism for more than 25 years. He is a graduate student at the Chicago Theological Seminary for his regular vocation. Jason works in the technology field and lives in Duncan, Oklahoma with his wife, Amanda, and two many dogs. Are we going to have any dogs barking in today's episode? I, I make no promises. <laughs> okay, so, wow. Okay, this is a very exciting. This is such an interesting topic. And, and Jason, I kind of want to just hand the floor to you. And I want to just, have, let's just start the conversation about the early beginnings of Mormonism and also stuff that was happening in upstate, more, uh, upstate New York at that time which put masonry front and center as well. Maybe we'll just start there. Okay. So uh, most, most folks are familiar with uh, Joseph Smith's uh, involvement in masonry, at least the fact that he became a mason in 1842. Um, within about six weeks after becoming a mason, he, he um, gave the endowment ceremony to its first recipients. Um, but uh, many years before that, um, the Smith family was was uh, steeped in masonry, magic, and mysticism. Um, Joseph uh, Senior and um, tried to become a mason. had had some some troubles becoming one. was blackballed. But uh, Hiram Smith was a mason. Uh, both of Joseph Junior's uh, grandfathers were masons. And um, the William Morgan affair happened in 1826 just a few miles away from where Joseph Smith grew up. Mm. And the, the Morgan affair is, um, is infamous um, in American history because it created the anti-Masonic party. And, uh, and yeah, that was huge. That was, a, that was like a huge political party at that time. And it was a very influential movement. And by the way, folks, just I meant to bring this up at the beginning. This is leading up to my summer of masonry, where we talk about the book Method Infinite Freemasonry and the Mormon Restoration. And that book is coming out next August. I'm going to leave a link in the description for you to, uh, to pre-order it. And Jason, um, we'll talk about, I want to maybe at the end of this episode, we'll talk about, you actually wrote a review of it. So we can talk about that as well. But continue with, okay, the, the rise of the, the anti-Masonic party was a big deal. This was the talk of the nation. 
Yes, this was this was the result of uh, William Morgan was a was a stonemason, and um, he he disappeared after after uh, it was reported that he was going to publish a expose of Masonic ritual, and he disappeared was um, supposedly murdered by Freemasons. Um, there's a lot of mystery and, and conjecture around that, but uh, he did disappear and was never heard of again. And news of this got got around the country, and um, many many saw the Masons as something evil. And in in New York State, um, a, about 500 lodges were in existence, and a, and only about 100 uh, after the Morgan affair. Wow. It was estimated that of about 50,000 Freemasons in the United States before the Morgan affair, um, about 45,000 of those left masonry. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was a big deal. And, yeah. uh, it, and it would have been in the, uh, in the soup that Joseph was in. It um, would have been uh, talked about in the, in the newspapers, in uh, the general store. And so Joseph wouldn't have even had to have read the book that William Morgan wrote to get a general idea that people would have probably talked about things that was in the book. From my understanding, they were actually doing reenactments of their secret ceremonies in public display. So it was it was everywhere. Yes, there were. In fact, there were entire uh, newspapers dedicated to anti-Masonry. And Joseph would have heard about it. He would have he would have seen the uh, the degrees put on. Um, he he would have seen. Uh, um, he would have seen. He would have seen the the all the uh, basically all that was going on in the these uh, ceremonies was public knowledge. So he would have seen all the uh, how it was, this organization was structured and what goes on in the temple stuff. So he would have that would have been everybody would have known about that, especially in that area where that was huge the anti masonic stuff. Yes, he would have seen all the secrets, all the handshakes, all the passwords. Exactly. All the things that uh, that Masons still today uh, believe are secret, um, we still at least pretend that they are. And mm -hmm. uh, Joseph would have would have known all about it, as as well as uh, other Masonic or uh, magic practices that the Smith family uh, encountered, uh, the uh, the dowsing, the uh, the the witching, the their practice in cunning magic. Um, they would have been very familiar with, with a lot of the things that, uh, that Masons would have, would have also done. Um, so like with, with magic and stuff like that, and like, uh, the folk magic, was there any Masonic influence on that? Or, uh, I mean, were they taking, like, maybe taking symbols of Masonry and integrating it into folk magic practices and stuff like that? Yeah. So one thing that Masonry is huge on is, is symbols, um, there, masonry has has lots of symbols that uh, that magic uh, users at that time would have would have used um, the tetragrammaton, the uh, star of David, um, the square and compasses. Those things would have been used um, and were used in, in in parchments that we know the Smith family had. Yeah, and that's the thing because they believe these symbols were tied in with like supernatural. Uh, you know, aspects, so they would then bring power to the practitioner of these things. So they would use Christian symbols and pagan symbols and Masonic uh, symbols, uh, whatever the symbols that they thought might give, provide them protection or power during their magical endeavors. Yes, and and something some people believe that the uh, the William Morgan affair um, might have given rise to. Um, some of the passages in the Book of Mormon and the Book of Moses about secret secret combinations. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, um, I I personally feel that uh, that what Joseph was talking about or what he was doing with the secret combinations of the Book of Mormon was he was referring to a, a spurious branch of Freemasonry that many Masons and non-Masons believed in at the time that. Uh, that not only did did God teach masonry to Adam and it passed on down through his posterity, but also that Satan taught it taught a a false form of masonry to Cain and, and down through Nimrod and others 
And that's what Joseph was, was referring to with the secret combinations. And that's what's fascinating because of course, in the book of Moses, we have Cain uh, calling him, referring to himself as Master Mahan. Right. Which, in, in other words, maybe that was the original word and it got corrupted as, as where things went down. So in, in other words, uh, it, it's obvious, it sounds, it sounds very much like Master Mason, you would agree. Yes. And you think that that's probably a connection to Freemasonry uh, that made its way into the Book of Moses. Yes, I think that uh, uh, not, not only is the Book of Mormon uh, influenced by Freemasonry, but I think that the the Joseph's translation of the Bible in the Book of Moses yeah. was as well. So I like this. This this was really intriguing to me because we talked about this the other day. I had never thought of it this way, but that that is true. That there was this idea that there was true Freemasonry, and even some would say like, well, George Washington, he was a godly man. He practiced true Freemasonry, and then he got corrupted or whatever. I've heard that story before. Um, but then there was this there was this parallel throughout history from the very beginning of time where you had pure Mormonism, and then you had this spurious form of Mormonism, uh, of Masonry, and that perhaps the spurious Masonry also kind of corrupted the pure Masonry, uh, maybe ca caused some cross-pollinization to occur, and that, so like when Martin Harris referred to the Book of, let's get back to the Book of Mormon, Martin Harris referred to the Book of Mormon as a anti-Masonic Bible, but yet actually you had told me that many Masons would have read the Book of Mormon and said, actually, this is a pro-Masonic Bible. Yes, it, it. Well, the Book of Mormon talks about many of the things that that Masons at that time would have uh, would have purported um, the uh, the ideas about government, about freedom, would have resonated with Masons. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, as I stated earlier, I think that the secret combinations most most Masons that were that were versed in um, books such as George Oliver's Antiquities of Freemasonry, which was very popular. Um, that they would have seen that as uh, these are the bad guys. They're not good Masons, they're bad Masons. And they, so, they would have seen that in the, um, in the Nephites, they would have seen the good Masons. Ah, uh, and then the Gadianton robbers. Building temples, building. Uh, okay, so they're building temples, they're doing temple works, things that would be recognizable to a Mason, but then you have this spurious form of Masonry, secret combinations, the Gadianton robbers, would be a, a parallel organization that was spurious. Yes, the the spurious Masons were seen uh, by Masons at the time, sort of like we would see the Illuminati now. Ah, that there that, that there was a master plan to take over the government and and uh, and uproot religion as we know it. Um, and that was that was the spurious Masons. And by this time, just I'm curious, because, you know, Adam Weiss put, uh, founded the Bavarian Lodge of the Illuminati in, in 1776. Uh, was this theory about the Illuminati also something that was pop talked about at this time? Uh, very much so. Uh, okay. And, and after, after William Morgan, um, non-Masons saw Freemasonry in general as being tied to the Illuminati. Okay. Now, I do remember, now, I don't know if this is a spurious story or not, but it just hit me. I remember reading, I was reading some anti-Masonic literature like when I was in high school, and supposedly there was a speech given by George Washington in which he condemned the Illuminati. Um, is that a, an apocryphal story, or did, did George Washington go on record saying this is not true Masonry uh, and then went after the Illuminati? Or have you ever heard that story before? I haven't heard that story. Yeah, so apparently he gave a speech saying that condemning the Illuminati. Um, I don't know if it was a real document or not, but I just found that fascinating because that would be the idea that, well, our founding fathers were true Masons, they were good men, and then you had this European form of Masonry, French, you know, coming, or Bavarian, coming over and corrupting um, the Masonic Masonry in America. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Okay, cool. So let's talk about, this is another question I have for you, and we talked about this the other day. Some people have speculated that the name Mormon might have been uh, in, influenced by the name William Morgan. Do you think there's any connection there? I think that's a stretch. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Even I even feel the same way about the Comoros Island and Moroni, I, you know, the capital. I don't think that's a real bullseye there. So since we're talking about early Mormonism, and one of the things we, we talked about was the idea of golden plates. Uh, yeah. This this is a very Masonic story. So talk about the tie of, of buried plates 
in with Freemasonry. So I've got a slide to share. Let me yeah, let's do, do that. Let's see here. We'll get do a view here. We're gonna do some sh screen sharing. I just love this stuff. I'm really enjoying this, Jason. And I can't wait for that thing to pop on and we'll do some more talking. Um, yeah, so just real quick while he's working on that. Okay, here we go. Okay. Oh, this is good. Okay, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Let's talk about this. So there's a there's a story in, in Masonry that is told in many different ways and different degrees, but basically the, a story of a, an ancient prophet or patriarch that buries a, a, something of great treasure, great value, uh, usually with, uh, with uh, mi uh, mysterious teachings or, or hidden teachings, buries it underground. It's found later by, by later Masons, and that truth is restored. Mm. And one of the, uh, the most common versions is the story of Enoch, the, the patriarch and prophet of the Old Testament. And um, Enoch buried a, a gold plate under nine arches into the, in the earth. And he was able to visit the site once per year, just like Joseph could visit the Hill Cumorah site once per year. Enoch buried a plate of gold that was buried under a keystone. And it, and he rested it on a, a pillar of alabaster. Hmm. And this parallels the Book of Mormon story in that, you know, an ancient prophet buries an, a treasure. Smith was able to visit the site once per year. Um, you know, there's plates of gold instead of a plate of gold found under a keystone. And it's resting on three pillars when he found it. Also, Joseph Smith Sr. said, that the uh, elements of masonry, the, the square and compass and other symbols were found on the plates themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, I think um, I think it's pretty convincing that, that Joseph was inspired by the Masonic tradition uh, when 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 he came up with the story of the of the Book of Mormon and the coming forth of it. Yeah, so it kind of provides a template that he can use in talking about a coming forth of a sacred ancient record. It, right. it appears to parallel the Enochian tale uh, told in masonry. Yes. All right, cool. So why don't you, uh, you want to show any more, uh, show any more slides uh, I, while we're still have it open or do you want to um, just- uh, Let me, let me show- um, Oh yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah, this is- There we go. So this is the, uh, the two kinds of masonry that that uh, George Oliver talks about in his book, Antiquities of Freemasonry. And basically God, God taught masonry to Adam and Cain taught masonry to Cain, you know, spurious masonry to Cain. And both of these are, are supposedly still around in, the, in the, the time of Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. And it's passed down. Yeah. And it's okay. So it's it's a parallel story. Uh, it seems like Satan is kind of in the process at the very beginning. Um, he's 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 kind of hatching a plan, a parallel plan to God's. Yes, and if you look in the the Book of Mormon and the in the Book of Moses, you know there uh, there are secrets, there there are oaths, there's penalties. Um, it even talks about this, the the uh, Gadianton robbers, you know. Uh, wearing, uh, you know, sheepskin across their loins, you know, as, as aprons. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 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 Fascinating stuff, dude. Yeah. So there are some parallels there and, and people, I think, caught on to some of that early on as well, obviously saw that. Um, and it, it was fascinating to do that. And so uh, one of the things, uh, is there anything that we want to talk about um, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon vis-a-vis it's the, the influence that Masonry had on the Book of Mormon as well as early um, Mormonism, like 18, 1827 to 1830. Uh, no, I would, I would encourage people to, to get the uh, Method Infinite book, though, because yep. they, they have a, an entire chapter on that period um, before the Excellent. Book of Mormon. Excellent. So now let's move into... Um, uh, maybe as we move further into church history a little bit. So what, where, where's our next place we want to go where we see uh, an influence of Freemasonry on Mormonism? 
Well, I would I would point to the uh, the Kirtland era and um, the formation of the high priesthood. Okay. I think that um, and the the book of Abraham kind of plays into this too. Um, you know, Joseph when he translates the book of Abraham, uh, he he learns about this order of high priesthood. The um, and it has you know has his grand keywords and and grips. Um, the uh, the fact that the high, the high priesthood is the Melchizedek priesthood is interesting because there. Uh, he calls it the order of high priesthood, and there's actually a, a degree in Royal Arch Masonry called the order of high priesthood. Oh, wow. And the, the story of that degree is the prophet Abraham uh, going to visit Melchizedek and, and uh, paying homage to him. And um, I think it's interesting that the, the Joseph's order of the high priesthood um, is, is, is the Melchizedek priesthood. Fascinating. And let's talk a little bit. Also, Enoch makes its, uh, his appearance in these pages as well in the, uh, in, in, in the, I believe the book of Moses, where he's uh, not only is he translated, uh, but an entire city is translated. Um, is this, is there any parallel of this kind of story in Freemasonry? No, but uh, Enoch does play a, a large role in uh, Masonic tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, not only the story of, of him bearing the, the golden plate, but um, uh, he, he's seen as, as one that uh, was very familiar with the mysteries of God. Yeah, so and so it sounds like the, the Enoch plays a major, it's, it's a fascinating how Enoch is treated. And of course, at this time, you had uh, this, uh, the, the coming forth of the book of Enoch at this time, right, where there was a translation of it. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, um, there, you know, there have been several uh, books of Enoch that have come out over the years, but um, Masons have have uh, not really jumped on uh, any of those as as being, uh, you know, true or or historical. Okay. But at the but at the time of Joseph Smith. Um, books, books like George Oliver's book, um, told very fanciful uh, tales of, of this continuous thread of masonry, you know, taught to Adam on down through his posterity, through the flood, uh, through, you know, through to Moses and, and even to Jesus. Hmm. And, um, uh, but other, otherwise, the Book of Enoch really doesn't play a part in Masonic tradition. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious about that. So, um, one of the things that we talked about how not only do we see like the priesthood structure um, that has seems to have some parallels and influences with with Freemasonry, but we also have a, a another secret combination, if you will, another secret society called the Danites. And maybe there's some parallels between the practices of the Danites and Masonry. Uh, there certainly are. Um, the the Danites were. Uh, were formed uh, and initiated into the order uh, through a series of degrees or, or stages, as Masons are. There was a, an oath of secrecy, with and there were grips and, and signs to distinguish and between non-members of the group and to be able to recognize one another. Um, there was, you know, pretty strong penalties involved. Um, and I think the Danites may have taken them more seriously than the Masons do, hmm. but. Um, well, I want to get, I actually want to get that to that because early on you talked about, we don't know, you know, William Morgan disappeared. Do you personally believe that he was murdered by Masons? Was this something Masons would have done then in the 1820s? Or do you think that that, that, that might, that may not be as clear cut as people think it is? Well, I think that there's a good chance that they, that they did kidnap him. And they may have gotten to the point where they didn't know what to do with him. Um, there, there was talk that, uh, you know, possibly he went to Canada, got paid off, um, you know, but uh, it's entirely possible at that time that, that uh, Freemasons may have, may have killed him. But um, generally throughout the, the, uh, the history of Freemasonry, the, 
the oaths and penalties are are considered to be more um, allegorical um, and not not physically binding that that uh, that those things would happen to someone if they divulge the secrets. Okay, very interesting. And would would they have looked at it as allegorical at the time, the Masons, when they took these oaths? Uh, most would. Interesting. Interesting. So, so in other words, a lot of the things that people were saying about the Masons was misunderstood because they were taking things very literally, where a lot of it was meant to be taken allegorically. Yes. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so we have the Danites who have this secret society that are kind of seem to be modeled after the structure of Freemasonry. And you mentioned it seems like they kind of take those oaths more uh, literally. Yeah. Um... There, there's a story that um, you know that uh, that Joseph Smith himself almost um, um, almost uh, was attacked in the night because he um, he wasn't familiar enough with the signs to uh, to distinguish yeah. himself. You know, got it. Um, so uh, one of the things I I what is so fascinating, of course, is what we see is within Mormonism. A lot of people believe that um, the temple ceremonies, the endowment ceremony, um, was highly influenced by Freemasonry. Um, before we move to the Nauvoo period, was there anything else that you wanted covered before we got there? Um, no, let's move on to Nauvoo. Okay, so that's okay. So we're at Nauvoo, and Joseph Smith. He he. Um, well, let's just talk about when Freemasonry and Mormonism start um, start influencing each other or when they start, uh, you know, th that whole thing starts happening. Like what would have caused Mormons to become Masons at that time? So uh, in December of 1841, uh, the Nauvoo Lodge was organized and um, they, they already had uh, a petition from Joseph Smith the next day to join the Lodge. He was, um, he was initiated in March uh, on March 16th of 1842. And he took he took his first degree that day. The next day he took his next two degrees, which is not very common. Usually there's a, at least a month or more between the degrees. The uh, the same day that he that he uh, became a master mason, he formed the Relief Society and put his, put Emma as the head of it. And there's some there's some parallels in the Relief Society as well. Um, they they met in the lodge room, which was um, the up, the upper story of the red brick store, Joseph's red brick store. There was an importance placed on on secrecy and discretion. Joseph um, was famous for for telling the the women that that they should be as skilled as at masonry as to keep a secret. Uh, it, the Relief Society was was run very much like a Masonic Lodge. Um, things were done in a very orderly way and and, uh, and by democratic vote. The uh, there was a very Masonic style process for petitioning petitioning an election of new members. They had to be uh, uh, voted unanimously to join. So there's there's a lot of parallels there with Re Relief Society. And uh, then in May. Uh, we're going to talk about the endowment ceremony. Well, yeah, before we do that, did Freemasonry at that time have a women's auxiliary like Joseph had set up, if you will, kind of almost like a women's auxiliary of Masonry? So, yes, um, there, there were women's groups. Um, the, uh, the Royal Arts degrees, uh, which is a kind of an advanced uh, set of degrees beyond the, the basic uh, craft lodge, um, they had the heroines of Jericho. There were other groups that, uh, other, other groups of Masons that had kind of women's auxiliaries. They weren't, they weren't members of the of the men's group, but they had their own uh, separate uh, degrees that they went through. So there were, um, there were groups of women that uh, in Masonic bodies, but, but I, I think Joseph. Um, Possibly already had in mind that he wanted to include women in, into uh, into masonry when he started the Relief Society. Oh, okay, like more fully integrated then. Yeah. 
Oh, well, that's interesting. Now, I, I do have to go back to uh, who was, how was it that Joseph was able to uh, get his degrees so quickly? Was it, uh, were these outside Masons that were bestowing this to him, or were these uh, Mormons who were Masons before him that gave, get, let him climb up the ladder so quickly? So he, he was what is called made a Mason at sight. And he, this was done by the Grand Master who had, who had dispensation to do that. In masonry, the Grand Master can do uh, pretty much anything the Grand Master wants to do. They, they, can, they can waive rules that, that generally apply to, to most people, but uh, generally when you become a Mason, you're initiated and there's uh, a waiting period between you, your next two degrees uh, for you to learn uh, the passwords, the grips, and uh, a catech, you know, kind of a catechism structure of, of questions and answers you have to memorize. And Joseph, all that was waived for him. And I, th I think a large part of that was the fact that uh, uh, he was kind of a big deal in Nauvoo. And I think that the Grand Master um, wanted to please him. Okay, that's interesting. So there's some political stuff going on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, there's a lot of interesting backstory. Um, the uh, the Grandmaster uh, had political ambitions, and he knew that the, that there were a growing number of Mormons, and he wanted to to make the Mormons happy uh, for political reasons. Now, before we get into the endowments and its influence, I want to let's just uh, tell the audience that at its peak, the Mormon Masonic Lodge was the largest. Actually, there were more Mormons in Masonry than the rest of the state of Illinois combined. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, one, one author puts it about six times as many uh, Masons as in all the other lodges in the state combined. So that that so were the other Masonic Lodges concerned about that? Very much so. Okay, so this is actually another underlying tension, if you will, with the Gentile world and the saints. Yeah, there were there were a lot of irregularities in the in the not just Nauvoo Lodge, but there were other Mormon lodges in the area um, that um, were doing things like they were meeting every day of the week, sometimes um, putting putting men through the degrees in every meeting. Uh, at this time, most lodges would would meet once a month or, or possibly twice a month, and they would would maybe bring one or two uh, men into the fraternity at that meeting. But these lodges were meeting every day of the week. And uh, so it was meant to be more deliberative. And apparently they were just putting it on, they were putting that thing on steroids and just doing, getting people in, initiated every day. Yes, it, it seems that, uh, you know, Hiram Smith was the master for a time of the Nauvoo Lodge. And I think that the, um, the plan was to make every male Mormon a, a Mason. Fascinating. So, so that's that. And we're going to get to, maybe later about the Freemasonry, the role it plays also, or, you know, somewhat in the martyrdom. Uh, but you wanted to talk about the endowment ceremony. So, uh, of course, folks, we're going to be respectful here on this program, but perhaps you could just talk about some parallels between uh, Freemasonry and uh, ceremonies and endowment ceremonies. So, uh, there, have, there have been um, Mormon apologists and, and historians that that tend to downplay the the fact that that Joseph um, uses some of the same elements of Masonic ritual in the endowment, uh, some of the same uh, handshakes or grips, uh, some of the same signs or the way that uh, that your arms are placed, you know, to make make different signs. Um, there are a lot of other similarities too, but but there are some apologists that that downplay these and say that, well, either um, they're just coincidental, you know, that um, throughout history, people have made made this similar sign, you know, with their arms. And, um, or they say that, um, that Joseph saw elements of, of Freemasonry that were a lost temple endowment. And he was going to restore that in, in the Mormon temple endowment. Okay, fascinating. And, you know, just to get back to, you know, one thing that we um, we talked about the other day is that, you know, Don Bradley wrote the book, The Lost 116 Pages, and he um, he believes that what we would consider Nauvoo-era 
temple endowment ceremonies were actually already in the original last 116 pages. Um, since we're talking about the endowment ceremony, what, what are your thoughts on that theory? Well, um, it's it's possible. I think that I think that Joseph was uh, familiar enough with masonry at that at that early stage that um, that he could have had some of those things in mind. Yeah, so that's kind of a naturalistic explanation that that perhaps what would that those because he had been had knowledge of the Masonic temple rituals that they could have been in the lost 116 pages, which I find is very fascinating stuff. Of course, uh, we have the square and the compass uh, in here as well, because apparently Joseph Sr. said that that was included in there, as you alluded to earlier. So either way, the endowment ceremony and the Masonic temple uh, ceremonies weren't just there in Nauvoo. They were kind of there from the beginning. I, I think that early on, Joseph had an idea of the endowment ceremony, but I, I think that as he as he went along, like in the Kirtland era, uh, in the book with the book of Abraham, I think that he he started to piece together more and more of it as he went along. And whether that that is a line upon line and precept upon precept of inspiration, or whether he just saw some things that that he thought worked together well, um, I think that that he's always been uh, you know pragmatic about picking up. Uh, new aspects of of the endowment and other things too. Okay, interesting. So, um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about Nauvoo era. Uh, this is kind of where the convergence happens with the endowment ceremony. By the way, do you have any slides uh, that, you, any more slides you'd like to share while, while we're talking about this? Topic? I do, I have, I have a couple of slides about right, let's, the, let's pull those the endowment up. ceremony. Very good. Get ready here. Do your thing, I'll do my thing. And uh, this is very interesting stuff, dude. I, I've always been fascinated by this topic and I actually, it dawned on me, I hadn't uh, really been talking about it and this channel has been around for a little over a year. So I'm glad we're, we're having this conversation to, to, to address this. So that's kind of cool. But by the way, folks, I, I, I saw Jason, as you're pulling this up, I saw Jason give a presentation to some Masons and that was the background he had. And when I talked to him the other day, I'm like, okay, Jason, that's the background you got to have for this interview. So I'm glad you did that. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So here is a parallel. So apparently it looks like a parallel between the uh, Masonry and Mormon endowment. Uh, please proceed. Yes. Yeah, so, so both the, both Masonic ritual and the Mormon endowment have obligations that are taken at an altar. There's a portrayal of a quasi-biblical story in um, in Masonic ritual, there's a there's a character called Hiram Abiff that, uh, uh, in the Master Mason degree, there's a story told about him. That's he's in he's mentioned in the Bible, but there's more in the Masonic ritual that you don't get from the Bible, just like the story of Adam and Eve and in the garden. Um, there's a test of fidelity. There's this theme of upward ascent that you, that you're moving up upward and and uh, and gaining more more knowledge. Um, there are signs and tokens, keywords, oaths of secrecy. There are penalties, at least in the um, in the older endowment ritual. Um, there are penalties. In um, in masonry, there there are three basic uh, degrees: uh, entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason. And there's also a fourth degree in um, it, in the time of Joseph. Uh, there would have been a fourth degree called the Royal Arts degree that would have been uh, considered uh, part of regular masonry too. And there, you know, as we know, there's four stages of, of the endowment ceremony. There's this promise of further light and knowledge in both masonry and, and in the endowment ceremony. And then uh, passing of veils. This is uh, something in Royal Arts masonry that uh, is very important. Um, the square and compass is uh, plainly obvious in the in the temple endowment and on the garments. Um, three ceremonial knocks. There's several um, instances of of the of the number three in masonry and in the endowment. Um, five points of fellowship, which is no longer in the endowment now. Um, the this idea of interrogation is a teaching method. You know, what is this? Has it a name? Um, question and answer that's very important. Uh, the divestiture of worldly clothing. 
in um, in a Masonic degree, uh, the candidate is divested of his uh, worldly apparel and and given uh, new clothes to wear for the degree, just as in the temple endowment. Um, clothing is worn in a special manner. This is something that's in 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 both, and then also the symbolic apron. The um, in, in masonry, the 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 uh, Masonic apron or white white lambskin apron is uh, what most people associate when they see when they see that they know it's a Masonic uh, symbol, and then the Mormon Temple endowment, of course, they wear a green apron. Fascinating. Well, could could that so is it possible that when they're talking about using white aprons and the Gadiites and robbers, that maybe that was a reference to that uh, that that the Masonry. Could, could that be a parallel there? I think it was a parallel to the to the spurious masons um, because it it talks about the Gadiants and robbers um, actually having you know red red aprons that were were dyed in the blood you oh, know oh they were white but they were dyed in blood that's yeah right. yeah got it got it uh, wow interesting stuff dude so there's definitely you 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 have been able to identify some parallels oh, here let me ask you a question so. Um, how much research has gone, and I want to get back to, I want to talk about the Council of 50 and a few other things as well, and post-Mono-Nabu Mormonism, but I'm just curious, like, how much, um, like, time have you spent, because uh, you, you've been studying Mormonism for basically as long as I have. Um, how, how long were you studying Freemasonry and Mormonism during this period of time? Was this something you, you picked up when you became a Mason, or were you also studying it before you became a Mason? I studied it some before I became a Mason. Um, but uh, some of the things didn't quite uh, connect with me the same way until I became a Mason. Okay, so you became a Mason, and you also had a lot of knowledge of of Mormonism, and so you're able to identify some of these parallels. I'm really curious what Benjamin Schaefer of Christ Branch uh, thinks about this, because he's both uh, a practicing a Mormon of a sect that's not based in uh, Salt Lake City, um, it's a, uh, a fundamentalist group, but he's also a Mormon. So I'm curious to get some feedback from him on this one. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about the, we, we've talked about the endowment ceremony. I want us to talk a little bit about also the Council of 50, um, uh, kind of like some parallels between Masonry and the Council of 50. And then I want us to talk about maybe about post-Navu uh, Mormonism influence. Okay, so... Um... The, the Council of 50, you know, is a theocratic and political organization that Joseph thought would be the, the basis for God's kingdom on the earth. Um, members were required to swear an oath of secrecy, like masonry. All decisions required unanimous consent. Um, they began meeting in the lodge room. Uh, and, you know, Joseph was, was ordained uh, as king by the Council of 50. And... One of the, uh, in the Royal Arch uh, line of masonry, um, there's this idea of, of, uh, of a prophet, priest, and king, the three, three of those that, that, um, that preside over a, a Royal Arch chapter of masons. Mm. And, um, you know, Joseph, I think, saw himself as, as, the, as all three of those things, prophet, priest, and king. Fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask you about him being crowned king. There was a parallel there. So thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, anything else about the Council of 50 that you want to talk about the, the influence of uh, masonry? Well, I think that uh, um, Joseph's presidential ambitions and um, I think also coincided with, um, you know, there was a there was a move among masons nationally at the time, those that were trying to build back from the uh, since the William Morgan affair that um, they would would uh, institute a national Grand Lodge you know it all the states had their own Grand Lodges but they wanted to some wanted to nationalize and, and form a national Grand Lodge and I, I think that some saw that uh, uh, that Joseph having as much power as he did with all the Masons that he had in Illinois uh, might be a good fit for that. Oh, fascinating! Wow, yeah, I never, I never heard that before. I do have a quick question for you. Um, in the uh, the Council of Fifty, did not, it wasn't all Mormons. 
there were some Gentiles in the Council of 50. Were those Gentiles also Masons? Uh, not, not everyone, but, okay. uh, but most of the Mormons that were involved were. Um, okay. and, you know, it was almost entirely Mormons and Masons, at least in the beginning of the Council of 50. Okay, fascinating, interesting. Okay, so um, anything else you want to talk about the Nauvoo period? Well, um, we, we can't not talk about the death of Joseph. Oh, okay, yeah. And that's and, actually the most important thing because this is the thing, okay. Um, there were apparently Masons that were in the mob um, and Joseph Smith's last words. Uh, talk about that. Well, why don't you tell me what they were? Oh, um, you know, it's, I'm blanking. I was just, I was just thinking about the uh, what was the uh, a widow's the that has to do with the widow's son or something like that. I forget. I, I don't know why I'm blanking on that because I just mentioned it to somebody the other day. So Joseph's uh, basically it's a plea for help from from fellow Masons um, as he's at, at the window, and then uh, he was it, they believed that he was beginning to recite, "Oh Lord, my God," and, yes. and then he, and then he was and then he was. Uh, you know, wasn't able to finish it, but he was. They I'm not allowed to say that, by the way. That's why. I'm... Oh, that's fascinating to me. Okay, thank you for. Well, is it okay that I said it? Well, it's your show. Am I gonna get in trouble by the Masons, man? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll put in a word for you. Okay, please do, man. I, I need I need all the help I can get. So, well, okay. So that's fascinating to me. So there were. So he obviously probably knew that there were Masons in the mob, and he's doing the distress call to other fellow Masons that they would recognize that he's one of us, but that didn't seem to help his cause. No, it did not. And why do you think that is? Well, at this point, um, the Nauvoo Lodge and the other Mormon lodges uh, had had their charters or dispensations revoked by the Grand Lodge. Okay. And so they were not seen as regular Masons. They were seen as what are called clandestine Masons. Uh, okay. And so if anything, they probably have more contempt for them than a non-member. Um, many of them would, yes. Okay, fascinating stuff. So is there, uh, you know, uh, Freemasonry, of course, folks, uh, from the very beginning of this country, especially going into the Masonic period, anti-Masonic period, has played a major role in conspiracy theories uh, all the way to this modern uh, to these modern days, right? So uh, Dan Brown's hit on it, and it's you know it's real popular in, in, in American literature. Were there people at the time that were thinking that it was a Masonic conspiracy, or have people speculated that Joseph's assassination was a Masonic conspiracy theory? People have speculated that uh, then and now. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there. There may be something to that, that at least there was some uh, resentment among the Masons uh, in the mob. Um, but I, I think that Joseph had probably other reasons that people were upset with him as well. So Yeah, so it was a combination of all sorts of different factors. Yeah. So now, um, did, did, was there anything else about the modernism you wanted to cover? No. Okay, so... I guess we could talk about now a little bit about the influence of um, post Nauvoo, the Masonic influences. Now, this is the thing is like, you, so you had one of the apostles talking about how this, they were, uh, Joseph was restoring uh, pure uh, Masonry or true Masonry. Um, uh, and so that, like, it was, it was like, like Joseph was re restoring true Christianity. He was attempting to restore true Masonry. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've got a I've got a few slides on that. Please, let's do that. I like it. Okay, so I'll just get her set up. So yeah, so then the other thing too, folks. You know, it wasn't until um, well, we're going to talk about how it wasn't until the mid '80s that finally the the Mormons and the Masons finally buried the hatchet. So this is a long simmering feud. Fascinating stuff. Okay. So oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, so this is one of the, the more famous quotes by Heber C. Kimball. Um, this was shortly after the endowment ceremony was introduced, and um, he, he wrote, I wish you were here so as to see and hear for yourself. We received some precious things from through the prophet on the priesthood that would cause your soul to rejoice. I cannot give them to you on paper, for they are not to be written. So you must come and get them for yourself. There is a similarity of priesthood and masonry. Brother Joseph says masonry was taken from priesthood, but has become degenerated, but many things are perfect. 
Interesting. And here's another quote, um, which you're alluding yeah. to yeah. from Hebrew C. Kimball. We have the true masonry. The masonry of today is received from the apostasy, which took place in the days of Solomon and David. They have now and then a thing that is correct, but we have the real thing. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's so fascinating. So there was an apostasy within masonry, and there needed to be a restoration. Fascinating. Yeah. One, one more quote um, by Apostle Rudger Clausen. The Masons admitted some keys of knowledge appertaining to Masonry were lost. Joseph inquired of the Lord concerning the matter, and he revealed to the prophet true Masonry, as we have it in our temples. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, so let me ask you, so as, as the history, uh, so I was talking to some, a, a pretty well-known person, and we were talking about how, you know, early Freemasonry, and the, the Freemasonry of the time and the Mormonism of the time had some similarities in their ceremonies, but it's harder now to find those parallels because both of them have kind of both diverged in different directions. So the, the parallels aren't as obvious now as they would have been then. Would that be a fair uh, assessment? Well, I, I think that may be a fair assessment. I the, uh, the first time I presented about this subject um, to the Oklahoma Lodge of Research, I had a uh, a brother Mason um, who's re recently left the church um, and it is a young relatively young guy he's uh, mid-20s and he said you know uh, several of the things you mentioned you know aren't in the ceremony anymore but I know they used to be he said but but when I became a Mason I noticed right away all the similarities that that I had missed as you know as an endowed uh, temple member um, and so I, I think that that even today the the similarities are there. Hmm. I, I saw a, a, a post by uh, Jonathan Streeter not too long ago that he talked about the penalties still being in the temple ceremony, and he makes a pretty good case for that. Hmm. Uh, I, I'd encourage you to go check that out. It's only about about eight or ten minutes long, but um, you know the uh, the uh, motions you make with your hands and stuff. Uh, in the penalties in the endowment ceremony, um, you still put your hands in those in those same formations. Okay, fascinating. Okay, so I um, I'm I'm just I find this this presentation you gave tonight to be very fascinating. Was there anything else you wanted to cover about Freemasonry that we didn't touch on yet? Um, no, I don't think so. I I would I would leave you with one last. Um, Last quote that um, you put out. You want to put it on the screen if you want. Yeah, I'll put it on the screen. Um, I've got too many, too many windows open. Oh, good. So that's fine. Hey, you know this is the way it goes. That's fine. Uh, and then what we're going to talk about is uh, we're going to briefly talk a little bit about Jay. I want to talk to Jason about Jason's story too. So okay, what does this say here? There's some good images there, man. You got some cool stuff. I'm on the wrong PowerPoint. Oh, Sorry. it's all right. Okay. It's all good. That happens. Um, did you want to summarize the quote? Or are you thinking you can find it real quick? I can find it real quick. Okay, cool. So while he's while he's doing that, again, folks, I'm going to leave a link in the description for Method uh, Infinite for pre-orders. I'm very excited about that. Um, it's been a long time, you know, when I was a kid in the 90s, man, I was so fascinated by Freemasonry. So I read a lot of stuff about that and the Illuminati. That was my wheelhouse. All right. What does Brigham Young have to say here? Yeah, so the, this is something that's still, um, I believe, still said in the, uh, the beginning of the endowment. Um, the year endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk into the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the keywords, the signs and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your ex eternal exaltation. So Brigham Young still tells us today in the endowment that, that um, there's some, something there for masonry that with the, the keyword signs and tokens. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Yep. So, well, um, 
I, I want to thank you so much for talking about masonry, but before I let you go, I actually want to actually talk about one more thing about Freemasonry, and this is this is so interesting, and I want, this is why I want to have Jason to come back up, because he has a fascinating story about how he was basically an anti-Mormon activist and, and researcher, um, and then he kind of changed and uh, kind of had a change of heart about the restoration. Uh, but you also were, as a kid, much like me, um, anti-Masonic. You were raised Southern Baptist, but your father was a Mason. Is that correct? That's correct. He was. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about that story? So um, back, back in the 90s, the, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, which I was raised in, um, they they had a controversy about Freemasonry and some some members of the, of the denomination um, wanted the convention to take a firm stance against it. And there was actually a, a year-long study that was uh, developed. Uh, there was a task force uh, committed to it. And the, uh, the leader of the task force that actually did the study um, ended up becoming a Mason himself hmm. in, as he studied Masonry. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was very much against Masonry when I was a teenager and um, into my um, early 20s. The, um, my father was very patient with me. He, he, he always told me, well, someday, you know, if you think about it, you know, want, want to learn more, you know, we'll get you a petition. Um, and it was when he got, the day that he got his 50-year uh, pin as being a, in the fraternity for 50 years, that's the day that I got my petition. Wow. And so... Um, what made you change your mind from going from anti-Mason to uh, a Mason? Well, a more liberal view of things. Okay. Um, and actually uh, just being able to see through a lot of the arguments that, that were put forth against Masonry, they were pretty weak mm. um, arguments. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's fascinating because you know, this is, I tell people, you know, I know a lot about Mormonism. And I hear a lot of people who have all these great opinions about Mormonism, and they don't know anything about Mormonism. They start telling some evangelicals start telling me what they know about Mormonism. No, no, you don't understand. You really haven't done the research. You really haven't read the things. And I found the same thing with Freemasonry. If anything, if you look at the histories, there's another history of Freemasonry, and that was Freemasonry was very instrumental in overthrowing despots in in Europe. Uh, the idea of of ideas of liberty and individual freedom. Um, all these these ideas would become American ideals. Um, so in, in one sense, it was in part of the reason why it was banned by the Catholic Church, uh, or you couldn't allow it because it undermined, uh, you know, the institutional authority in Europe, uh, it, at least it was viewed as a threat to the institutional authority because it gave, it gave a place for regular folk to have some power and influence in the society as well that didn't afford them that at that time. That's right, and it's, Freemasonry is still uh, looked down upon by some governments of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Ma Masons had their own uh, insignia in the Holocaust. Oh, that's right. Were, yeah, the Nazis and and, and the Freemasons. Upside down, Spain. a red triangle. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So you had like a friend, Franco, the president of Spain. He was so obsessed with Mormonism, he actually had like a, a whole built like room that was like a replica of, of like a masonic i don't know hall or something which i always found fascinating so he was fascinated by it but banned it just like hitler did they viewed it as a threat as well yeah yeah interesting stuff and so your father before he passes away you become a you, you so so you were able to do that before he passed away what did that mean to your father uh, i think it meant the world to him and uh and it did to me as well he he passed away uh, not many months after I became a Master Mason. So that's so, fascinating. But we were able to sit and lodge together a few times. And um, it's, it's, it's quite a thing when, uh, when your father becomes your brother. It's a very special bond. Oh, what a great story. I'm glad that it came full circle there. And your father was able to see that. That's some of the regrets that a lot of people, that, that their parents didn't get to see you become the, that do that full circle and circle back um just for a few minutes here i just want us to talk briefly about 
another favorite subject of ours, and that is uh, Pauline Hancock, who was the, on the only female founder of a restorationist church, a Book of Mormon believing church, Bible believing, Jesus believing, Book of Mormon believing church. And that was the church that Gerald and Sandra Tan joined after they left the LDS church. Um, what made you so interested in that subject? Well, one, one reason uh, that I became interested in Pauline Hancock is um, I was raised by a strong woman um, and was always taught to respect women. And um, I would correct you on one thing. I, I, I think that she was the first woman uh, to become a leader in, uh, and found, found a Mormon church, but I don't think she's the only one. Okay, well, uh, okay, well, thank you. Thank, do you know who, uh, I mean, because, yeah, was there another one that you can name for me? Um, yes, if you hadn't asked me, I could. Um, if you look at uh, Steve Shields' book. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, then we'll yeah, talk. He, mentions, he lists about 500 and something. Um, Expressions and sex yeah. and stuff, yeah. yeah. But okay. I, I certainly think that she was the first. She was definitely the first, no doubt about it. Yeah, so so tell me, so you got interested in her because there's a strong woman and it's an interesting story. It is. Uh, Pauline uh, was raised in the uh, the RLDS church, the reorganized uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, like a lot of people in the mid-1920s, um, she becomes... Um, dissatisfied with the the direction the church is headed this was something called the supreme directional control controversy mm -hmm. where the frederick m smith the president of the rlds church declared that he that he should have supreme directional control of the church and um, a lot of people left including uh, pauline and her husband they spent some time in a in a protest group that um, was just called the protest group and members that still wanted to be faithful to the RLDS faith, but couldn't stomach Fred, Frederick M. Smith's uh, leadership. And then she joins the Temple Lot Church. And at this time, the Temple Lot and the RLDS recognized each other's baptisms, correct? Yes. Um, well, the, because the Otto Fetting came in and changed it, but, but the Temple Lot Church recognized the RLDS baptisms. Oh, okay. Not the other way around. Um, after, after about a third of the church left, the RLDS church at that time, um, they, they didn't know there was, well, I don't know if anybody left the Temple Lot church to go to the RLDS church really. Yeah, probably. Okay. Probably not. Yeah. So I don't know. But, um, but yeah, they, they went and joined the, uh, the Temple Lot church and, um, there was a, a elder there called Samuel Wood that, uh, began teaching a, a oneness theology of one Godhead theology. And um, Pauline liked it. She sponsored his book that he, that he published. And he was excommunicated from the Temple Lot Church. And Pauline and her husband left with him. Uh, a, few years, a few years later, she spent her time uh, in the antiques business and did that for several years. But I think around 1946, she started um, meeting in, in uh, members' homes, having Book of Mormon and Bible studies. And she eventually started her own church. And as you said, the Tanners uh, were, um, were involved in her church. Uh, she baptized the Tanners. And um, I think she, if, if you read uh, uh, Ron Huggins' book, The Lighthouse, um, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, I think that uh, uh, Pauline meant a lot, a lot to the Tanners uh, for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, she passed and, away in the early 60s, and um, even after the Tanners uh, stopped believing in the Book of Mormon, I think that Pauline and her church members still still felt close to the Tanners. Yeah, there was a kinship there. Yep, and it's a fascinating story, folks, because, you know, people don't realize this. Gerald Tanner was not through with the Restoration when they left the LDS Church. He was going to Independence, Missouri. He was going to try to start up David Whitmer's old church, yeah. and then he found themselves walking through the doors of Pauline's church, and, and in one sense, history was changed you know by uh by this little church and this female founder of a restorationist branch that really kind of started things in a certain direction which uh, changed the course of mormon yeah. history in in many ways and it's very likely that if if uh, gerald had not been involved with with pauline hancock uh the tanners wouldn't be the tanners right because 
it was it, it was at uh, a meeting in uh, where Gerald was playing Pauline sermons and invited some people to come that uh, Sandra's grandmother had dra drug her along to this meeting and that's where she met Gerald. That's right. So that everything was put into motion there in this remarkable story. Uh, in my interview with Sandra Tanner, uh, we, I spent a lot of time talking about Pauline Hancock at her church. I deliberately did that because it, no, no evangelicals are interested in hearing that story. But that to me, of course, I'm the evangelical that is. And I think it's important that we document these stories. And I want to thank you for documenting some stories. I want to thank you for writing about Pauline Hancock. I want to thank you for having a change of heart on Mormonism in that it's enabled you to actually kind of be more objective in your study of Mormonism. And in many ways, and we're gonna have you back because I wanna talk about how Mormonism even impacted you and your faith by something that an apostle said. And I find that to be a fascinating story. And if, so you went basically from fundamentalist, anti-Mormon to basically more nuanced, progressive um, restorationist, right? Well, restoration as well, because you're disciples of Christ, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the Restorationist Church that uh, affiliated with, uh, that would have been something that Sidney Rigdon would have been baptized into uh, before he went into uh, the LDS Church. Uh, Jason, I really appreciate you coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. And I want to thank you because I think the work that you do is so awesome. And you had told me that you don't normally do interviews, but you felt comfortable coming on my program. And I'm so glad you did because I think your story and your, your story is fascinating to me. And I've been wanting to get you on since last summer. So thanks for giving me the privilege of coming on my program. Well, it's been my pleasure, Steve. So was there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about before I let you go today? No, I think we covered it. All right. So folks, this was awesome. Freemasonry, Mormonism. It's all good. So I just want to remind you to uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and hit the notification bell for when a new episode comes out. Also, I want to thank all my contributors who support the channel via PayPal and Patreon. I would ask uh, you would consider giving a donation. There are many, many podcasts that have hundreds, if not thousands of donors, um, you know, and that's great. I'm glad they're being supported. But if you have extra money that you could toss to a little guy like me, that'd be greatly appreciated as well. Um, also, just remember Mormon Book Reviews is our merch store. You can uh, help support the channel by buy buying uh, products as well. Um, and just don't forget that we're on all the major podcasts. About a quarter of my audience now does download uh, episodes. Uh, that's really growing fast. We're on, available on all the major platforms. You all have yourself. Uh, yeah, Steve, yeah. I got one more thing. Oh, yeah, let's talk. Okay. Bonus. Method Infinite coming out August 9th, yes. 2022. Yes. And link in the description. I'll have that in there. It's a it's a groundbreaking work. And you've read it. Copy. And you actually wrote, wrote a review of it for the journal and i'm excited when is that review going to be published uh the the journal comes out in uh, september right before the meeting okay so so the book will be out but that's fine you know we will have your book the book your your uh, review and i'm looking forward to reading the book and then reading a review and see if you got it right <laughs> all right dude thanks for uh, reminding me about that and everybody you have yourself a great day and uh, be well and uh, try to stay cool this summer because it's hot in florida and just about everywhere else